Hello there, friends. This is Spencer Michaud, and welcome to your weekly astrology forecast for the week of June 15th through the 21st. Uh, we've got a very busy week in the sky uh, this week with uh, Mercury, our friend Hermes, uh, stationing retrograde at 14 degrees of Cancer. Mars will be making a sextile to Pluto, a retrograde Pluto, at 24 degrees of Pisces and Capricorn, respectively. On Saturday the 20th, Mars is going to be making a sextile to a retrograde Jupiter. And then the Sun will be moving into the first decan of Cancer. So we're going to have a, a solar shift that's happening, and that is also the summer solstice where we have the longest day of the year and when the night starts to return to growing in length. And then on Sunday the 21st, if that wasn't enough, we're going to have a new moon solar eclipse at zero degrees of cancer, um, which should be uh, very interesting. So let's, let's dive right in here. Hope that you're all doing well. I'm going to share my screen. I have a lot of uh, interesting things to get to today. Um, been doing a lot of reading with some new material. I've been really getting into um, Liz Green, who is a uh, more of a modern psychological Jungian astrologer, but she's very gifted at um, talking about myth and some of the stories behind some of the archetypes, and I've really been enjoying her work, especially her book, The Astrology of Fate. So I'm going to read a little bit from that book. Um, in addition to that, I've been you know diving, doing a deep dive into Bernadette Brady's Fixed Stars book, so we'll talk a little bit about Mercury uh, retrograding on the um, fixed star of Sirius this week as well. So that's part of our, it's part of our story. Um, so one thing I wanted to do before we get into the essential dignities, as part of the essential dignities, what I want to start doing is talking about each planet uh, and how it is relating, um, what types of aspects it's receiving from different planets this week. So like, for example, I have one chart on the screen here. And if we start off by talking about our sun and Gemini at the beginning of the week, it's going to start off at 24 degrees Gemini, um, where it is in its own face. It has rulership by face. It's in the terms of Saturn from 24 to 30 degrees. And it is co-present with Venus and the North Node this week. So we want to start thinking about what kind of um, relationships do each of these planets have with the other planets? Because remember, the Greeks thought of the um, the chart or the sky as like this cosmic courtroom or this cosmic like city structure where each of the planets were uh, emissaries of a deity that had you know specific relationships with one another and were communicating and were giving witness and testimony on the the life of a native and and their fate um, been doing some really interesting explorations on the nature of of fate which I might make a separate video about but uh, Liz Green is really great at describing the different ways of thinking about fate versus free will in her book. And a lot of these are echoed in some of the talks that Robert Schmidt gave in his uh, Project Hindsight um, talks um, that were titled Fate, Allotment, and Decree. So the combination of those, um, those lectures and being able to read more about it in Liz Green's book has been giving me a lot to chew on. Um, and I guess just to make it, it, it short, basically the Greeks thought of um, fate as an allotment, like it was uh, the, the word for degree, I believe is actually called mori or mora, 
and that word means an allotment. And so it, it's interesting to see that uh, the zodiac itself is spoken as, as, as what we are being allotted in this lifetime. And then she goes on to talk about different types of fate. One is hemarmene, um, which is sort of like kind of the circumstances that you're born into. Um, and we have the fate uh, called ananke, which is uh, also closely related to agnoia, um, both of those being of the nature of Saturn or Saturn relating to these ideas where we're creating fate. Um, we're compelled, ananke is the compelling of something uh, to, towards something that may be uh, through our ignorance as well. Agnoia is kind of the darkness or the ignorance. So we may be creating a type of fate where we're being compelled from our, from our ignorance, from not knowing any better. And then she goes on to describe uh, a concept called pronoia, which is the fate that we are creating through our um, awareness and our foreknowledge. And that, that particular type of fate was most associated with the concept of grace or of providence in some of our religious texts and you know, that we may be able to make some changes or we may be able to make some uh, adjustments to the, either the severity or the, the types of experiences we, we may run into um, via the, the, the type of fate that is created through Hemermene. So the, the gist of it is it boils down to, from what I'm understanding, is that we've got some events that we may, be, we may not be able to avoid, um, and, but we may be able to, uh, you know, make some adjustments based on uh, some of our foreknowledge on whether we are using uh, things like astrology to prepare ourselves mentally and emotionally to perhaps uh, make a better choice within the moment of whatever circumstances we're being presented with. So I thought that was really interesting. And I'm sure that as I get further into these texts, I will have a, a, a greater understanding, but I wanted to just share a little bit of that as we move forward. Um, so before I even dive into this, I want to talk about the, the period of time that we're going through right now is called the Bardot period. Um, and that is a, a reference to the, one of the Tibetan books of the dead, where these periods in between eclipses, we had an eclipse last week, we had a full moon lunar eclipse in the, um, over the Gemini and Sagittarius axis. And we are moving towards a set of eclipses over the Cancer Capricorn axis. And sometimes the in-between phases were, were thought of like this liminal space between life and death. Um, the Bardot period in this Tibetan book had three stages where you had the death itself and your awareness and coming to terms with it. A second stage where you're presented with all these frightening apparitions um, that could potentially lead you to reincarnating um, or a rebirth process that leads you away from liberation, which was one of the uh, the goals, I guess, I don't know if you'd call it a goal necessarily, but one of the things that we're trying to, um, we're trying to, uh, I don't know, come to terms with in, in Buddhism. And then the third stage being that transition into the new body. And we're, we're doing that right now. We've got this kind of space where we're leaving some of the old things behind. Uh, we, we just went through a full moon eclipse where we're leaving something behind. And we're heading towards an eclipse where we're uh, initiating something new, maybe being born into a, a new body of sorts, a new body as a collective, as a collective consciousness, as a society, as individuals. 
Um, so it's a really interesting time where we may be presented with some frightening imagery uh, and we have to kind of um, use our mental discipline and our faith and our hope and our pranoia to make the choices as to uh, you know, what kind of things we're going to create. And cancer is all about creation. Cancer is all about birth and union of the body and the soul. So we'll get to that. Um, anyway, back to our essential dignities. So the sun is going to be co-present with um, Venus and with um, the North Node. Uh, it is also going to be aspected traditionally by a square, an overcoming square with Mars in the sign of Pisces. So we still have that active square that's happening. So that is a, that is a condition that is harming the sun this week. We have a overcoming trine with uh, Saturn in Aquarius. So we do have aspects from both of the uh, malefic planets this week to the sun. So that, that is creating a little bit of a difficulty. Um, we are also going to be seeing the, as the sun moves into Cancer, uh, it's going to start opposing Jupiter and Pluto. So those themes are going to start to become prevalent as we move forward in our week as well. Um, in the beginning of the week, the, the sun is going to be provided resources by a very um, a slow-moving Mercury as it begins to station, which means it begins to slow down and is about to reverse course. So we're going to be kind of getting to this moment. And at any time a planet stations, that was said to be a condition of, of Phasus, an omen that is speaking. So Mercury is getting ready to, to turn around and and reevaluate a lot of the things that we've been going through over the last few weeks and potentially go into the underworld as it goes under the beams of the sun. Um, Mercury had uh, significations and the role of psychopomp in uh, traditional astrology and in Greek, Greek mythology. The psychopomp was a, a guide of souls to the underworld. So uh, it, Again, it echoes some, some of the themes of Mercury's ability to go between worlds and hold the duality of opposites. And I'm going to read some, some material from Liz Green about Mercury that I thought was very poignant as well when we get further on in our dailies. Okay, so that's what we've got going on with the sun. The sun is going to move from 24 degrees of Gemini to 1 degree of Cancer, so we're going to change dignity. When the sun moves into Cancer, it, it is peregrine uh, instead of having dignity by face, and it will be in the terms of Mars from zero to seven degrees. So not, not a lot of dignity for the, the sun, but it will change hosts. It will change hosts from uh, Mercury to the moon. So the moon is the steward or the host of the sun, and it's going to be providing resources. Uh, and that is very interesting because the, the moon is going through a, excuse me, a renewal this week with that that supercharged solar eclipse. Okay, so Saturn this week is going to be in the sign of uh, Aquarius, where it has rulership. Um, it is the, the diurnal ruler of Aquarius. Uh, it also has triplicity dignity by the daytime, um, and it is in the terms of Mercury from zero to seven degrees. As I said before, Saturn is going to be aspecting both Venus and the sun, so by trine, so there's a potentially harmonious relationship between um, those three planets right now, uh, even though Venus is in, it, in its retrograde phase. Uh, it is going to be um, 
it will be aspecting, uh, it is in aversion to uh, Mars and Neptune, as well as to Mercury until it retrogrades back into Capricorn, which I believe doesn't happen until uh, a week or two from now. So moving forward, we have Jupiter at 25 degrees of Capricorn, still retrograde right now as well. Um, in its fall in the sign of Capricorn and in the terms of Saturn from 22 to 26 degrees. It is moving into a conjunction with Pluto that I believe is going to perfect on the 25th of June. So we're getting really close to another uh, Jupiter-Pluto conjunction. Uh, I believe the first one that we experienced was in the, uh, in the middle of March. Um, I could be wrong on that. It might, be, might have been May. I think it was March, though. Um, but anyway, a continuation of some of the themes of, um, you know, decay, themes of uh, expansion of uh, corruption, uh, themes of expansion of the, the supercharged energy of change and transformation. Um, so a lot of the themes that we think about with Pluto in the third decade of Capricorn is kind of this nuclear volcanic energy that is is sort of the uh, the you can think of it as the ability of the caterpillar to dissolve the DNA to be reformed into something new and not just the the birth itself but the process of decay before the for the new birth as well so we're we're, we're right in the thick of that um, Mars is going to be in the sign of Pisces still in the third decan of Pisces as I'm recording this today on Saturday. Uh, the what is the, the date today? The thirteenth. Mars is perfecting its conjunction with Neptune. Um, so an interesting day as we are seeing the connection between the the god of war and the um, the god of the oceans, the god of illusion, the god of deception, uh, the god of toxicity. Um, so Neptune and Mars together has been creating this kind of desire to transcend, um, but drawing upon resources from that retrograde fall in Jupiter. So there's some belief systems that we may be trying to put out into the world and taking action on our beliefs in this kind of almost like this holy war type of crusade energy that may be based on a Jupiter that is in the process of contraction, right? It's be, it, Jupiter itself is drawing resources from Saturn, which is associated with darkness, uh, at that agnoia and ananke energy um, where we are trying to um, compost uh, some of our old belief systems so that we can create something new uh, when the when the cycle starts to shift again so in addition to mars being in the sign of pisces it does have dignity uh, in as the triplicity ruler of the water signs by the nighttime it will be in its own terms from 19 to 28 degrees, I believe. Uh, let's see. Yep. Yeah, moves into the terms of Saturn at 28 degrees. Um, so powerful Mars, powerful Mars right now. It has some dignity. It's going to get even more powerful as it moves into Aries in a few weeks. Um, but right now we've got kind of a uh, a shifty Mars that has a, some dignities, different types of dignity than being in its own domicile, but 
kind of this like um, watery, uh, you know, elusive martial quality. Again, some of the themes that we've been experiencing as Mars has gone through uh, Pisces and made it square to the sun was a difficulty finding truth. Um, perhaps uh, some of our actions being taken through uh, illusion, um, through the desire to like uh, transcend, to escape. There may be some some uh, themes of escapism happening as well. Um, yeah, it's been a little bit of a a rough sail with Mars moving through Pisces, especially with a with a host that's in the condition that it is right now. Moving forward to Venus. Uh, Venus is in the sign of Gemini, in the first decan of Gemini, where it is peregrine and it is still in its retrograde phase. Uh, it's in the terms of Jupiter from 6 to 12 degrees and then moving into the terms of Mercury from 0 to 6 degrees. So Mer I'm sorry, Venus recently made its appearance, uh, or it is about to, after I record this on Sunday. If you're listening to this over the weekend, it will be making its appearance as a morning star um, out coming out from under the beams uh, around Sunday evening. So there's some event that we may be experiencing as a collective and in our individual lives in, you know, around the, the uh, sign or the temple of Gemini that is speaking to some kind of new Venusian uh, mission, I would say. It just went into the heart of the sun. It, it had its rebirth uh, at the inferior conjunction, and then when it makes its appearance as the morning star, Venus is ready to rumble. She's the warrior princess at that point, or the warrior goddess, I should say, more accurately. Uh, and she is is ready to take action, uh, potentially to attempt to unify, but, but in a more diurnal and aggressive and warrior type way. Uh, the essential nature of Venus is always to, to bring harmony but sometimes she's willing to fight for that harmony and sometimes she's willing to wait for it. And she's fighting for it right now. Um, moving through the sign of Gemini, we're, we've been trying to reconcile these, these opposites. And sometimes we have to be shown um, really how far apart we are in some things and how far, how, how dualistic our experience has been. And we've seen a lot of this with the Black Lives Matter movement where we've been, a lot of it has been about bringing awareness to how unjust and unfair our system really is and how different the experience might be between uh, people of color and people who are white or in the majority. And that, that's something that well, we've been seeing a lot in social media with a lot of articles circulating about what type of, uh, you know, what type of experience really that, that people are having and how to, to have empathy for that experience and not just to how to have empathy, but how to really uh, take action and potentially bring more fairness, equality, and justice to the system itself. Um, as I was speaking of last week, just as um, Black Indigenous people of color are born into a system that is, that is unjust, so are white people born into that same system that gives them privilege. And uh, a lot of the times, uh, the people that are born into the position of privilege um, do not have to think about things in the same way as the people that were born into uh, a system of oppression. And a lot of, I think, the hard work that's being done right now, especially in um, white communities, is learning about learning more, like Gemini, asking questions about that privilege, and trying to uh, make the change from 
that position of privilege. Because when we have systemic racism, a lot of the hard work is not necessarily, um, doesn't need to be done by the, by the people of color. It, the hard work actually needs to be done by the, uh, the, the person in pri privilege to dismantle that system. When you are a person of power in a system, you have the ability to make changes within that system. And I think that's a lot of what we've been experiencing as a collective right now. And it's really interesting times. It's, it's not comfortable all the time. It's not a, a place of, um, you know, we've had that Venus retrograde energy where we're, it's, it's difficult to, to find a consensus. Um, but through doing that hard work, through that discomfort, through the awareness of the differences in experience, eventually that will lead to uh, uh, a different, um, a birth of a new, a new harmonization. At least that's my hope. That's what, that's the hard work that I've been doing on a personal level uh, is trying to just become aware of any blind spots that I might potentially have and then take well-informed actions based on, on that particular um, position. And having tough conversations, having tough conversations with relatives and friends and, and um, trying to call people in versus calling people out. I think that's one of the mistakes I made as a um, someone who wanted to be an, an ally, I guess you could call it. Um, but what I would do was I would let my emotions get the better of me and I would call out um, the, the people in my life. And I think as a society, it's important to call out injustices and to make people aware of that. But I think on an individual level, it's, it is more, more effective to call people in um, as far as giving people actionable steps to, to make change. Um, because I, th I think that if we get fixated just on, the, on shaming or guilting, that's when we can start to really, people can put up the walls and the defenses. And where we might um, bring someone into the, into the cause or into the mission of actually creating significant change, that, could, that calling out on that personal level could, could cause people to shut down and erect even stronger defenses. Um, and that's something, that's something I've really been working on personally because my initial instinct is to get angry about something and to, and to call people out. Like I think one of the, the uh, flaws or superpowers or flaws, you could call it, um, as being a Cancerian son and you know, embodying some of the mother archetype energy a mother can uh, can give encouragement, and and a mother can also shame. And I think that that's something that I've had to really work through embodying that Cancerian archetype. Is how do I uh, encourage growth through my ability to um, give life rather than to take it away? And what we'll talk about that as we move through Cancer this week is there is there is duality involved in that. the The mother is consuming. Uh, to, to give life, but also we can have this kind of Ouroboros type of relationship where the Ouroboros was a, a, the, the snake or the dragon that was consuming its own tail. Um, so there are dual qualities of, of building up and tearing down within this archetype as well, within this particular temple archetype. And we can think of it not just as a, as a temple, but as a field of... Hmm, a field of concretization, 
where we are where planetary archetypes or essences are able to be born into form so it's kind of like a a a place where we're seeing the, the planets manifest into uh, concrete material things through the birth channel of the sign or of the temple. It's like a gateway. Think of these signs as, a, as gateways. So we've got divine energy that's trying to, um, that's trying to birth itself through these, these doorways of the signs. And there's only a certain amount of uh, types of forms that are available to the divine energy to manifest within in the different temples. And that energy is provided for by its host. So in that in that temple of Cancer, our host is the moon. So those are the types of uh, types of archetypes that are able to be born. The types of forms are lunar. All right. So moving forward, um, I'm going to have a few digressions. This particular uh, forecast, I think, because my mind's just swimming with all this information. And apologize if if that's hard to follow sometimes. Um, we've got a Mars-Neptune aspect perfecting today, so <laughs> bear with me. So Mercury is going to be retrograde in the sign of Cancer. It will have dignity by uh, in the second face. So it is one of the, uh, it does have rulership by face. Mercury being one of the, is the Chaldean ruler, whereas the other ruler, I guess, is Mars in the triplicity system. It will be on its own terms from 13 to 19 degrees. But it is slowing down. It is slowing down to turn turn retrograde. So we'll we'll break that all down. The moon is uh, waning from its last quarter phase into the new moon eclipse, where it starts to gain in light again. It'll be peregrine in the sign of Aries. It will be in its exaltation, uh, have triplicity rulership, and be in have its um, have rulership by face in the second decan of Taurus, um, and then it moves into a peregrine condition in the sign of Gemini. And finally, it will land in the sign of Cancer where it has domicile rulership, where it is the host of that particular temple. All right, so that's the essential dignity for for the week. Um, Let's move forward to our dailies and I will kind of um, break down some of these concepts as we move, move through our week. So on Monday, June the 15th, I'm gonna start moving through the hours here. So the sun's still in Gemini on Monday. Uh, We are seeing a last quarter moon phase with the moon in Aries, moving off of that square between the moon in Pisces and the moon in Gemini, where we're we're going through and continuing through uh, a a shift, uh, maybe a little bit of an existential crisis, where we're trying to incorporate all the lessons that we've learned over this last Gemini moon cycle which included an eclipse, and trying to integrate them into our, into our consciousness and into our reality. And on Monday the 15th, the moon is going to be squaring retrograde Pluto at 6.21 p.m. It'll be making a sextile to uh, the sun at 8.10 p.m. at 25 degrees of Aries and Gemini. And then it'll be squaring the retrograde Jupiter at 8.49 p.m. So Monday is going to be continuing those, those themes that, that started over the weekend about maybe reconsidering some of the things that we're, we're doing, uh, maybe potentially reconsidering some of our belief systems, but, uh, especially since we had the South Node in Sagittarius over that eclipse uh, being provided for by that fallen Jupiter that is conjunct Pluto, con- 
composting those old beliefs, letting go of things that, that aren't serving us as a collective and personally, letting go of maybe some of the injustices that we are, uh, that have, have been brought to our attention, some of those unconscious biases even. Um, we're seeing the disillusion or the, the, uh, or the dissolving of a, a lot of the, um, the structures of governance that we've been uh, experiencing for a long time as well with a lot of police departments disbanding or dis, uh, the call to defund them and, and kind of recreate um, the way that we um, take care of our citizens, the way that we support them through potentially more community-based initiatives and things like that. Um, I'm still learning about all of this as well. Like the whole defund the police movement is kind of a, it's a new one to me that I don't fully have a, a complete understanding of yet. But from what I have read, it's, it's in, in some cases, there may be like a, you know, disbanding and reforming type of energy, but a lot of it is about reallocating resources from uh, the militarization of the police through having all these like tanks and, you know, heavy duty artillery weapons and things like that. And potentially uh, giving over more of those resources that we would use to to equip them to potentially more social programs. Um, I, I believe one of the arguments is is that a police officer is being asked right now to not only be a public safety officer but be uh, a social worker and be a counselor and be a therapist, be a marriage counselor, uh, be a mental health expert. All of those things that they may not have been properly trained for. And by reallocating resources to um, these types of um, social uh, positions in our communities, we may be able to uh, send out the, the right type of properly trained person for different situations and uh, keep you know, our, our police force for other types of specific purposes that they may be better trained for. Um, that's my understanding at this point. There could be some things that I'm missing within that, and there could be um, different um, perspectives on that as well. I don't think that what people are calling for is a free-for-all for, free or chaos. Um, I've been doing a lot of learning about the police force in, in the past few weeks, too. Saw a really great uh, lecture by Samuel Reynolds that I highly recommend that I've shared on my Facebook page talking about the history of policing in America. And one of the things that he is very specific to point out is that uh, the police force is, has been a, uh, it started off as, I believe, um, trying to uh, round up runaway slaves and to maintain um, white privilege and to maintain the, the property and the, the superiority of of the you know people that were in power, and it is it has been um, since used as an instrument of capitalism to to maintain sort of a uh, corporate oligarchy. I guess I don't know. I'm diving into the deep waters here again, um, and I don't want to confuse the the facts either like i i'm trying to draw upon these a lot of different things right now and i, I don't want to confuse the issue but go listen to sam reynolds 
uh, talk. It was an, an uh, Association for Young Astrologers talk that he gave in July of last year, where he talks about Pluto and uh, the police system in America. And he makes a number of really great points that are very, very well researched, talking about the history of, of policing in America in particular, and how it has been used to uphold systemic oppression and, and inequality. And uh, I, really, I really think that he's got a lot of great stuff that he puts forward. And, and, and before you get like upset about it, if you're uh, on the other side of the fence, um, I think one of the things that we need to do is, is hear a lot of different perspectives right now and understand our history um, because the, the lot, yes, there are um, individual cases of people that were trying to do good within a corrupt system, um, but we are at a moment where we're examining a more, uh, we're examining the big picture. What Saturn is asking us to do in, in Aquarius right now is to hover over our life and look at how we've gotten to this point, not just as individuals, but as a society and the agreements that we have made as a culture. And I, I think that that is the, the proper way to go through these changes is to try as much as possible not to take the changes as personally as you can. Now, you might want to do the hard work of examining what your role is within that society and how you may have benefited or been oppressed by systems. But again, having a little bit of objectivity is going to help to not immediately go to a defensive position and say, just as the uh, people that have been oppressed have born, been born into this system, I too have been born into a system uh, of privilege. And examining the privilege and oppression dichotomy, that's the duality that we're working through, uh, especially with like Mercury and Cancer now, like who is being nurtured and who is being, uh, who is being denied. That is one of the themes too of like Cancer versus Capricorn. And we've got really important planets right now asking us to compost um, the old ways of, of um, you know, of death, decay, oppression. And we're being asked to figure out how do we nurture each other in new ways? How do we give life? How do we give um, support to, to people in a more equitable fashion? And this is something we're going to be working through through the summer as well. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing with Jupiter-Pluto is um, a lot of times when people have power and when people have been given privilege, there are two ways you can react to that privilege being threatened or the, the thought of it being taken away or it being redistributed. You can go through it willingly. Um, you can go through it and say, you know what, maybe I have benefited from this and maybe it is important for me now to think about the world in a more equitable fashion and, and realize that that is part of how the society that I've been living within has been built. And this goes back generations too. This isn't just about like your own Protestant work ethic or pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps or things like that. The fact of the matter is, is that uh, for many, many generations, there were advantages that, that were given to um, the people that were in the majority group that made it a lot easier to do that. Not saying that people who have had privilege haven't been hard workers or there haven't been like, 
uh, I, and again, I mentioned this in a talk that I gave with um, Stormy Grace. So go check that out. I talked about the planets. She's a wonderful uh, interviewer and astrologer and has a lot of good insights and a cool channel. And um, I was talking about just, we, had, we, we got into a discussion about current events too. And one of the points made is that, you know, there are many different ways to be oppressed and there's many different ways to have privilege. And race is just one way that you can have privilege or, or be oppressed by. Uh, other ways of feeling oppressed there could be economic. Other ways of feeling oppressed could be by gender or could be by um, sexual orientation. So just because you have privilege in one area of life does not mean that you're not simultaneously oppressed in a different area of life. So I think being able to hold that duality is important. And that I think that helps with some of the conversations too, because I've had a lot of conversations with people who say, well, I'm not privileged. You know, I'm poor. And, and that's a different type of oppression. And, and that, that needs to be examined as well. I think we're going through that process right now too, with the equal distribution of, of wealth being something that is a conversation. Um, but it is, it is at the same time wrapped up in, but also separate from the the acknowledgement of privilege by, by race as well. Um, it, reality is multivalent. I think that's the thing. When we, as we move through the last de degrees of Gemini sun and our awareness, we're, we're being asked to make a choice. We're being asked to say, where do we, what do we choose? What are we going to feed? What are we going to nurture and what needs to be left behind? And uh, it does definitely take an ability to, to hold some of these opposing, um, you know, gray areas, these uh, types of um, ambiguities. And it's, it's tough. I, I, I really empathize with uh, many people right now who are going through asking themselves the tough questions and, and going through that. And um, because it, it is important, though, it is. All right. So that is Monday the 15th. Uh, as we move forward to Tuesday the 16th, we are seeing a continuation of our last quarter phase, okay? The moon moves into Taurus on the 16th, excuse me, uh, at 5.35 a.m. where it is gaining dignity. It's gaining dignity by exaltation. The moon generally is, is more fertile in this particular sign. Um, it is able to bring things more into manifestation. Now, the interesting thing that we have going on when with this particular phase though is we're moving into a last quarter balsamic phase so having a last quarter taurus moon myself i can speak to this a little bit um one of the things that i've done in my research learning about this particular position is that uh when you have a taurus moon but it's waning there may be an ability to um, consistently remove obstacles to manifestation or to move, remove bad habits. So instead of being so like procreative, this may be a moon where we're able to uh, calmly and centered, centeredly uh, remove any of the, the negativity or remove any obstacles to what may be getting in the way of manifestation. Um, the other thing that's good about Taurus Moon, though, is it, it does lend a little bit of stability to our emotional nature. Um, it's, it speaks of consistency and being consistent in our routines and consistently sowing the seeds that we need to do uh, to, to create um, fecundity 
I love that word. That's a word I learned from Austin Kopic, <laughs> fecundity, which is, you know, being able to sow the, sow the earth and, and quicken it with vitality and see things come to fruition. On this particular day, Tuesday the 16th, the moon is going to be making a square to retrograde Saturn at zero degrees of Taurus and Aquarius at 729 a.m. So we may be coming face-to-face uh, -face with some of the hard truths that are informing our, our decision-making and our awareness um, this, particular, uh, this particular cycle. Um, as the moon moves into Taurus too, it's going to become co-present with Uranus. And, and Uranus is going, that, that aspect isn't going to perfect till the very early hours of Wednesday, but it's going to be informing the kind of energy that we're feeling on Tuesday the 16th. So we may be really uh, getting shaken up out of our old routines. Um, Uranus was associated with Prometheus in both Liz Green's work and in Richard Tarnas's work in Cosmos and Psyche. And I'm actually realizing that before Richard Tarnas wrote Cosmos and Psyche, I believe in 2001, um, Liz Tarnas was talking about Prometheus um, a long time ago. And I believe this book, The Astrology of Fate, 1984, uh, 1984 was, uh, she was talking about um, Uranus as Prometheus, which I thought was really interesting. It might, may have been one of the sources that Tarnas um, was drawing upon. Um, they could potentially be contemporaries too, so I don't know who, it doesn't really matter, to be honest with you, who, who, who discovered what. It's, not, it's a kind of a chicken or an egg thing, but I, I wanted to kind of give, give a shout out to Liz Green on this because I'm really enjoying her writing. And um, after studying Hellenistic astrology for you know, going on three years now, it's really interesting to return to the roots of like a psychological and myth-based astrology as well and see that within the context of the Hellenistic system. Uh, it really lends a lot of depth. It lends a lot of um, awareness and understanding where we can kind of begin to reunify those systems. I went through a Promethean schism, I would say, when uh, Uranus was moving through Aries in my ninth house of belief system, uh, you know, associated with um, astrology too. And that's when I uh, kind of started to leave some of my modern astrological practices behind and uh, learn about Helen the Hellenistic system. And it was this huge, you know, kind of lightning bolt uh, where it was shattering a lot of preconceptions that I'd had about astrology after studying uh, modern astrology for, for, you know, over a decade and introduced me to like this, I don't know, I, I think of it now as a gift from the gods and, and of all these techniques that were part of this beautiful, coherent system that answered a lot of questions that were shrouded in amb ambiguity um, when I was studying modern astrology. Like, they were kind of like, this is what this means, but my questions of why were never uh, answered to my satisfaction. And in studying the Hellenistic system and traditional astrology in general, it just really gave me a, a greater, greater awareness. So now going back to the myth and, and trying to, to reconnect that with how we, uh, how we think as human beings, how, how that does affect a psyche, and simultaneously being able to hold astrology as being divinatory and event-based and concrete, where we can see the planets representing concrete events, but also bringing it back to that awareness 
of uh, it being part of the psyche as well and part of our internal experience as above so below as within so without it's like it's that kind of hermetic wisdom where we're we're seeing things in our external world being echoed in our minds in our experience in our soul in our inner being and i'm just finding that really um really enriching right now and i don't think it would have been possible without um both without really both of those types of uh, experiences and both of those types of awarenesses and um, so anyway go get liz green's book I, i'll put it on my book list okay so that's what we've got going on on saturday i'm sorry saturday <laughs> today's saturday on tuesday the 16th okay is is mostly that connection with the moon to uranus and making a square to saturn and saturn is in the overcoming position so we may there may be some of the, the uh, coming into contact with some of our own limitations, with our ex experiences that, that may have been shrouded in darkness, Saturn being associated with that agnoia and ananke, um, the, the type of karma and fate that we create through our ignorance and through not knowing any better, being through compelled through ignorance. Uh, I, love, I love that. I, I used to call Ananke, the ignorance, but uh, it, there's reading Liz Green's work has given me a little bit more of a, a nuance to it, where Ananke is the force that compels us, and Agnoia is the darkness, is the, is the not knowing. So we are being compelled thro through our ignorance to create fate or to be subject to it. And I think that if I was to ground this more in a chart, I think that if we don't have awareness of these things, I think then there's plenty of us that are just living out our lives that have no understanding of astrology or no understanding of divine wisdom or anything like that. A lot of folks like that, and, and some of us that do have some of this as well, because uh, we're not perfect, we're not always going to make decisions <laughs> based on our higher selves, um, is a lot of times we're living out the, what is written in the chart just through our unawareness of it. So like, let's say you have like a Mars square, I don't know, you have Mars square Jupiter. Okay. And I'm going to talk about Mars Jupiter late, later in the, in the, the show here. Um, but you may be living out um, themes of um, accelerating self-aggrandizement or ambition or expansion, um, being aggressively um, dogmatic with that particular aspect uh, through potentially not knowing any better. And if we're thinking about how do we bring more agency into our lives, if you had an awareness, pronoia, of that tendency, of that thread, okay? One of, they thought of Hemarmene um, as a thread or the, the three, three mori, one of them uh, weaves the thread, the other measures it, and then the last one cuts it. Uh, I don't remember what the exact names of the three Moirai were. Um, I believe one was Lachesis. Oh, I don't know. I'm going to butcher all of that, trying to draw that from the <laughs> memory banks right now. But if you look at the three, the three fates, you had one that was spinning the, the, the thread. You had another that was measuring it out. And then the, the next one that was severing it and, and cutting it. And uh, our awareness of, of that thread that we're creating could potentially lead us to um, 
either downplay some of those tendencies or the severity of the negativity. Um, it's kind of like, you know, you probably are going to manifest some kind of challenge with a Mars Jupiter square in your life, especially if Mars is overcoming. But, it, you know, I, I believe I've heard it compared to, uh, let's say you were going to sustain some sort of injury, like one, if one of those planets represented injury. Um, it could be the difference between, you know, breaking your leg and having a very severe injury or like just like getting a, a, a scrape or a bruise or something like that. Like you are going to experience some kind of concretized event related to that aspect, but you may be able to avoid some of the, the, uh, the more challenging parts of it through your awareness. Okay, let's move forward to Wednesday the 17th. On Wednesday, June the 17th, the moon is still going to be in Taurus in, that bals in the balsamic phase now, which is the dark phase of the moon. Um, in Liz Green's book, she also talks about the triple goddess, where we talk about the moon as uh, mother, as maiden, and, and as crone, right? So we, we have uh, the moon in the, the, the Hecate phase, where she is the crone, where she's uh, coming to terms with uh, old age and uh, incorporating all that wisdom and seeing form start to decay. Uh, and we're, we're kind of trying to process all the lessons that we've learned from the previous lunar cycle and figure out what needs to stay from what we've learned and what needs to be uh, gotten rid of. Okay, so uh, the moon is going to perfect that conjunction to Uranus at 9 degrees of Taurus at 12.15 in the a.m., so just shortly after midnight. Um, it will sextile Mercury at 11.03 a.m. at 14 degrees of Taurus and uh, Cancer. And then it will sextile Neptune at 11.18 p.m. from 20 degrees of Taurus to 20 degrees of Pisces. Now, one of the things I wanted to discuss on this day is uh, Mercury. And this will be part of our theme as we move towards Mercury retrograde. But on, on Wednesday, the, the concept I wanted to introduce is that Mercury is going to be conjoining on the ecliptic, the fixed star Sirius. And Sirius generally has a zodiacal position of around 14 degrees of Cancer. Now, if you want to get all technical and talk about parans and things like that, there may be a different position for it. But this is where it is on the ecliptic. Um, I'm not using parans for this particular concept. I'm using um, its conjunction. Now, I believe that uh, when a planet is conjunct, uh, I could be conflating some of this, but I believe that the planet will be culminating um, at the top of the chart when it's conjunct. Uh, as Mercury will be at this point, at this degree. So it sort of works both ways. Now let's talk about Sirius, because Sirius is one of the brightest stars in the, in the heavens. It is part of the constellation Canis Major, or the dog. Um, it is the guardian of the underworld, or one of the guides uh, to the underworld. It's associated with the Egyptian myth of Isis um, and reconstruction of her lover Osiris. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. 
Um, there are some, uh, it, it is, right now it is our pole star. It is our North Star. It was the, uh, the star that the Egyptians associated with the floodings of the Nile and of birth and uh, the primordial waters. Um, it was the heralding of the, the, the Cancerian season. Um, so we're going to extract a lot of our meaning from, from some of those themes as well. Now, let's talk a little bit about this Isis myth because I think this is important. When we're using fixed stars, fixed stars uh, are, you know, in our celestial sphere model, and I, I talked about this a little bit in my talk with Stormy Grace, so if you want to know more about celestial spheres, go, go check that out on her channel. Um, this, the fixed star sphere was outside of the seven planetary spheres. It was, it was said to be more, um, oh, I don't know, more divine <laughs> because the fixed stars were the ones that were not were always uh consistent in relationship to one another and the ancients associated consistency with divinity and uh change with the the realm of fortune and the realm of this this world um, so we had these unchanging types of qualities and you know everything was revolving around that pole star now i have a book coming in the mail called Hamlet's Mill that <laughs> I've been waiting on for a month because for whatever reason, the postal service has been super slow, I, probably due to COVID and all these funding challenges and stuff like that. But I have uh, both Bernadette Brady's book of planets and fixed stars, which is a, a supplementary book to her other book of fixed stars that I already have, planet combinations, which would be useful. I'm sort of having to draw these combinations myself without reading Brady's thoughts on it beyond just a regular fixed star book. Um, and then I have that Hamlet's Mill book coming in the mail, which is uh, a book about how we created, I believe it's about cosmo archaeology. So how we've created uh, stories and mythology through our observation of the heavens, which would be pretty useful for an astrologer, wouldn't you say? <laughs> one of the themes that I've just been reading from Brady, because Brady is one who draws upon that book a lot, is that uh, as we can, we've um, experienced the concept called precession, where the, the planets or the, the stars, the stars, the fixed stars start to precess and the, and the zodiac itself starts to precess or move uh, and change its position. There's this mythological themes of the death of certain deities, and uh, uh, you know, subsequently the birth of different ones. Like when we had the, uh, I believe when we had one of the constellations that. Um, now, like I said, I don't have the book yet, but from what I'm understanding from the way Brady describes it, there's like a whirlpool that the constellations are. Uh, descending into and they're being swallowed up by this whirlpool due to precession and pre precession is like the the destabilization of this perfect unchanging world it's like if even the gods can change that's like the this fall from grace so to speak and certain constellations were being swallowed up in this the whirlpool of precession and basically what precession is is it's a it's a condition uh that is due to the wobble of the earth where the sky uh, appears, the, the position of the, of the constellation appears to shift over time. 
And this is one of the reasons we have like a difference in the tropical zodiac, which is based on the, um, the solstice now, and the sidereal zodiac, which was based specifically on the position of the constellations. So they're off now. So in Jyotisha, in, in Vedic astrology, they, a lot of them use the, um, uh, the sidereal signs, which are different than our tropical signs. But Western Hellenistic astrology, uh, from, from what most people can uh, discover, has been tropical from, from the very beginning. And, but when it was first being formulated, the tropical zodiac and the sidereal zodiac were fairly in alignment. And as we've moved out of alignment, that's, that's been, you know, talked about as being symbolic of like, you know, the fall of man or so to speak. So that's one concept to think about. But back to Sirius. Sirius is uh, a star that was rising. They talked about the dog days of summer with Sirius because it was, you know, said to be rising in the, 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 the heat of summer. It was very bright. It was associated with heat. It was associated with brightness. Um, and in this myth of Isis, in the Isis story, uh, Isis was married to uh, Osiris. And she had, um, I believe it was her brother, Set, who became jealous of Osiris. And Set was the god of war, of storms, of chaos. Okay, and, and he has correlations with the, um, the monster Typhon in, in Greek mythology. So Set got jealous of Osiris and Isis' Isis's relationship and tricked Osiris into um, putting himself into this kind of coffin-like box. And, you know, Set sent him down the river. Uh, and eventually, like, I guess that box was consumed by a tree and there are parts of the story where um, when Isis was trying to recover her husband, uh, Set split uh, Osiris into many different pieces and scattered them across the land. And eventually Isis had to try to recover those pieces with the help of Set's wife. Um, I don't remember her name off the top of my head. Um, and uh, reconstruct Osiris. So this is a death and rebirth type of, of story. Um, and Isis was only able to recover uh, enough of the pieces to um, mate with Osiris and then eventually born the son Horus. And after the, the mating, I believe that they couldn't find the, the phallus or the, the penis of Osiris, like that was lost, <laughs> like, um, which is interesting because then you have to figure out, well, how did they, you know, how did they do what they did? But yeah, there's all sorts of leaps of logic in, in classical mythology, <laughs> but I digress. Um, so eventually Osiris became, uh, you know, the Lord of the underworld in the Egyptian myth. And um, so there's some interesting things themes of death and rebirth with Sirius. Again, Sirius was the dog that was the, uh, the guardian of the underworld. And so we've got these kind of themes of trying to, my thoughts when I was reading these stories and these mythologies was as Mercury is stationing on this degree and anytime a planet stations that kind of supercharges the energy of it. 
And Mercury also had qualities of being a psychopomp, of going in between worlds, of the world of the mortal world and the underworld. And we have Mercury as messenger, okay, who is trying to hold these dualities. As I'm seeing this as Mercury the messenger trying to go into the underworld and recover and reclaim all of the pieces that have been split apart by Set, the god of chaos, of war, the storms. We've been going through a period of time where Set has been, or Pan, could be another way of thinking about it. I don't know if they're essentially analogous, you know, but I, we could see them having some similar qualities of creating chaos, right? Um, We've been seeing chaos reign on the, on, on the realm of the, mor on, in the mortal realm over the past few weeks where everything feels like it's up in the air. And we're in this Bardo period, this transition period. And Mercury right now, Hermes, is going to be responsible for going between the worlds and collecting all the pieces and drawing upon that energy of Sirius and, that, and that, those mythological themes of collecting, like Isis, all the, all the, uh, pieces that were scattered throughout the land, all the disparate ideas, all the shattered um, truths, all the shattered belief systems that we were holding on to, and recreating through hope, through a new system. And I think this is what really important, and I want to make this a point. She's not trying to recreate the old system. She's not saying Osiris has to be born again. She's only recreating enough to be able to create a new birth. And I'm going to pause for, for impact because I think that's really, <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was like, wow, that's really cool. You know, we're not trying to go back to quote unquote normal. There is no going back to normal with the awareness that we have now. And maybe the normal, was, was so flawed. Why would we want to go back to that? Unless we are just completely delusional and completely living with our head in the sand, how can we possibly want to maintain that old corrupt system unless we are trying to be agents of oppression? And I don't know about you, and I don't want to be an agent of oppression. I want to be an agent of of the quality and of truth and of, of fairness and where we can live in harmony because we cannot live in harmony if we have oppression. And I, I say this, you know, with, uh, <laughs> with, with like I'm standing on the pulpit, you know, like on my soapbox here with a religious fervor of, of Mars, Neptune conjoining, that if we fail to treat others you know, the same way that we want to be treated, if you, we, cannot have, um, we cannot have peace and we cannot have the, the, uh, the type of grace that we want to create and the type of harmony that we want to create if one of us is suffering. And only through ignorance will we be able to live 
through, with peace any longer. On, only through ignorance, only through ananke and agnoya. And man, that, that's powerful. That is a powerful moment of change in our history. Is our, we, we can choose to live in ignorance or we can choose to be part of the return of the light and the birth of the new society. And yeah, pretty powerful stuff with, with Mercury stationing on Sirius, that, that dog star. Another theme of Sirius is a quest for immortality at the expense of the mortal body. Okay. And we can see that wrapped up in the Isis myth too. I did some research for one of my classes on, um, on this, this particular fixed star in relationship to Michael Jordan. Now, I, I, have, I have, my son is pretty close to Sirius. It's within one degree of Sirius. And so I, I feel this energy powerfully. Um, and Michael Jordan had Sirius directly on his ascendant. Uh, so you could see this quest for immortality at the expense of like the, the mortal coil. And um, when I was doing my, my art and my music, there were oftentimes I would forget to eat. I would forget to sleep. Uh, when I was doing my album a few years ago, I, I, would, I was really running myself into the ground because I had this deep desire to create something divine. And to create through that, that primordial water and be a channel of that divinity. And this is a great um, transition. This is a great uh, sequitur here to Thursday. So I'm going to talk about Thursday, June 18th here. Because on Thursday, Mercury is going to be stationing retrograde at that 14 degrees. And you can see now Mercury is in red here, stationing retrograde. Okay, and we are going to, t I'm going to talk about Mercury here because I, I think that uh, Liz Green has some great stuff about Mercury. First, let's, let me go through the moon aspects. Moon is going to sextile Mars from 24 degrees of Taurus to 24 degrees of Pisces at 5.16 a.m. It's going to trine retrograde Pluto at 24 degrees at 6 a.m. Then it will make its trine to Jupiter retrograde at 8.02 a.m. Right on, moon's going to be close to Algol at that point. So again, that's one where you got to watch out for uh, getting a little too, like losing your head due to like maybe your belief systems. Uh, the moon will move into Gemini at about 5 p.m. or so. And then it's going to make a trine from zero degrees Gemini to, to Saturn at zero degrees Aquarius retrograde at 6.34 p.m. So those are our lunar aspects for the day. So, um, uh, you know, kind of a, some harmonious aspects, but with challenging placements. So the beginning of the day, we may be really, um, there is harmony between the light, the moon, and the, the agents of, of death, <laughs> okay? Um, so we may, this may be the time where we're really doing the good hard work of letting go of some of the old stuff. And I really think that's part of the role of the malefics is how do we let go of things and compost things so that we uh, eventually can have the return to the light. Now, you're not, my, my teacher, Achyuta Babadas, my astrology teacher, makes this a point too, that you can't just think of the darkness in context with the light. You have to appreciate the darkness for what it is and, and 
And um, don't just try to go through the hard stuff so you can get to the good stuff. Like it's, it's kind of like, don't just eat your vegetables so you can have your dessert, you know, <laughs> like, um, you know, the dessert is tasty, but we have to acknowledge that the, the vegetables are providing a lot of nutrients. So appreciating that darkness for what it is rather than saying, well, it's just part of the return to the light. Um, I, I think that's important because I, I, I tend to be, I can, we all can get, fall into that pattern too. All right. So there's one other aspect on, on Thursday that is important. We're going to see a, a sextile between Mars and retrograde Pluto at 7.08 p.m., um, which could add to the volcanic catharsis of the moment. Um, it could be an acceleration of change. It could be adding fuel to the, the fires of, of fermentation, um, adding vitality to that process or, or adding uh, anger and aggression. Um, you know, it could be a point where we're, getting, you know, Alan, Alan White was a, a great astrologer from Project Hindsight who talked about kind of nuclear fusion and fission in relationship to Pluto, uh, where it can make big things small and make small things big. So it could be blowing, you know, some of our uh, um, impulses towards um, holy sacrifice way out of proportion. Or in other, in other cases, minimizing something very important and trying to make it small. So keep your eye out, eye out for that particular aspect. But what I wanted to talk about on Thursday is Mercury's retrograde cycle. Now, we just got, ton, ton, uh, we got done um, talking about Mercury drawing upon the energy of the fixed star Sirius on, starting on Wednesday. And what I want to do is I want to read to you um, a, a passage from Liz Green's book, The Astrology of Fate, because I, I, it gives some really interesting context to Mercury in general and some things I want to talk about as far as why Mercury is associated with ambiguity, with trying to hold the duality of opposites, of light and dark, of its quality as a destabilizer, um, and it's association too with Gemini and Virgo. And there's a lot of um, interesting truths that can come from this. Now, this is page 194 in her chapter on myth and zodiac. She's talking about Gemini, but Mercury in particular. She says the character of Hermes, Hermes is, an, is the Greek name for Mercury, embodies within itself this ambiguity and flickering of light and shade, of which the twins are another emblem. Hermes is Zeus's cleverest son. He was born to Maya which is both the name of a nymph and also the name by which Zeus addresses the Greek goddess Night when he seeks an oracle of her. Okay, so that's important. So Hermes is the son of Zeus, which is, is interesting because he's always kind of, you know, defying <laughs> the king or dad. So there might be some like paternal issues with like Mercury arguing with the king, you know, where the king's trying to confirm and stabilize things, and you've got this impetuous child trying to say, well, no, I'm, a, I'm this teenager that wants to, like, shake things up, right? Okay, so that could be one thing. But also what I think is even more interesting is the combination of Zeus, which is knowledge and associated with light and wisdom, with uh, Maya, which is the nighttime, the darkness. So being able to hold duality is, is spoken of in the myths itself as being a child of, of both the light and the dark. And we can see this in the Thema Mundi too, as Mercury takes its joy in the first house, the place 
uh, right on the horizon where we have the emergence from the darkness into the light. Okay, so he says, thus Hermes is not just a child of any ordinary woman. She is an older, more powerful deity, and the mating of Zeus and Maya becomes not just another of his usual rapes, but the union of the bright spirit with the dark, unfathomable depths of the unconscious and of nature itself. So Liz Green says what I just said in a much more eloquent way. Um, Zeus, it is said in the story, courted her in a dark cave under the cover of night, and she bore a son of great cunning, a deceitful flatterer, a robber and a cattle thief, a bringer of dreams and a nightly prowler. As Karenyi puts it, as are those who lurk in the streets before the gates. Hermes began his checkered career by inventing the lyre, which is like a guitar, and stealing his brother Apollo's cattle. He later became initiated messenger on the path to the house of Hades in the underworld, thereby fulfilling the office of psychopompos, or psychopomp, the escort of souls. Thus he can traverse the world above and below, and the mortal realm which lies in between. He is the only deity who is not assigned a place, for his place is the borderland, the, ro the roads and passageways, the crossroads where suicides are buried and criminals hung. Human beings benefit from Hermes, but sometimes willful he willfully leads them astray into the dark night. Interestingly, one, one version of the god's birth makes him the twin brother of Aphrodite. They are both children of the sky god Oranos or, Ur or Uranus and share the same birthday on the fourth day of the lunar month. Uh, their son, Eros, the great daimon of love and discord. This curious tale of Hermes' birth offers us another dimension to his character, for he is far more than a mere trickster. He is twin and soulmate and his soulmate is the goddess of fertility, and their child is an image of the great binding force of life. Hermes fosters relationship even through quarreling and separate, separateness. Okay, that's interesting. Fosters relationship even through quarreling and separateness, and brings, together through and brings things together through their differences and vice versa. According to Walter Otto's description, Hermes lacks dignity, quote-unquote, his strength lies in his resourcefulness. He accomplishes his deeds through guile and enchantment. Magic is more appropriate to him than heroism, which is perhaps why in the Renaissance, the magical texts which we met earlier were assigned to thrice great Hermes. He is an arch wizard and a patron of magicians. From him also comes gain, cleverly calculated or wholly unexpected, but mostly the latter. Okay, he says, Otto writes, this is, true, this, is, this is his true characterization. If a man finds valuables on the road, if a man is, has a sudden stroke of luck, he thanks Hermes. The regular word for windfall is Hermion. The familiar expression for av avidity is common Hermes. To be sure, a man must take a good deal of trouble before he receives the gift of this god. But in the end, it is always a lucky find. The Hindu god, Pushan is a parallel of Hermes, for this god also knows the way and leads the way in keeping a man from straying. All right, so there's more about Hermes that she talks about there, but that's, that's enough to process here. So if we were to break that down, Hermes holds duality through lightness and darkness, through being the son of Zeus and Maya, the darkness. 
Uh, he was initiated as a, a go-between between worlds, so some of that ambiguity. Um, another way of thinking about Mercury or Hermes as the destabilizing force is based on some conversations I've had with my astrology teacher, Chutha Bhava Das, uh, and his understanding of um, some material with Robert Schmidt. So I want to make sure that I acknowledge both of those, um, those people and these concepts. Uh, and he and I have talked about um, Mercury, and this was a, a concept that he introduced, uh, as the destabilizing force and transition between um, the light and the dark. So here's what, I'm, here's what I'm thinking. And here's part of what we were talking about. Mercury is, is associated with Gemini and Virgo. In the relationship to the, to the seasons and the, the lightness and the darkness, Gemini directly precedes or is the mutable, changeable sign before the summer solstice. And the summer solstice is the point where we have the longest day of the year, where the sun is kind of rising to its peak and then starts to descend and the days become shorter. So we have this kind of quality when we get to cancer of the descent of the power of the light. So what Mercury is doing is creating that uh, confusion, that de destabilization of the power of the light. And the same thing happens with the relationship between Mercury in Virgo and the spring, I'm sorry, the fall equinox. Because what happens at this, because we've got the summer solstice with the, the transition from Gemini to Cancer. And then we have the fall equinox with the transition from the, the again, cadent, mutable, changeable sign of Virgo to the fall equinox where the, the, the days and the nights become equal and we have the transition to the, day, the, the days becoming shorter and the nights becoming longer. So both times, Mercury is an agent of bringing the darkness and cast, in darkness we can associate with ignorance or doubt, right? Of, of the unknown. And Mercury is a agent of the unknown. It, it is ferrying souls to the underworld too. Okay, so it is, it is a messenger, but it is when we're asking questions, when I've been saying over the past few weeks with the North Node and Gemini, ask questions, cast doubt, release certainty. It is the opposite of the transition that we see with Jupiter ruling Sagittarius and Pisces, okay? where we see the return of the light, the confirmation, the pulling together of resources for the light to return, both at the winter solstice, where the days start to increase in length, and at the spring equinox, where the days start to become longer than the nights. So we have both of those planets being transitionary, ruling cadent signs, and one of them is casting doubt, the other is about the hopeful return of the light and casting wisdom with the sun being related to knowing and knowledge and the light of the mind. And that, that's like just starting to like really just like 
I don't know, that, that concept really is helping me understand so many facets of astrology with Jupiter, Mercury, Pisces, Sagittarius, uh, Virgo, Gemini. It's all starting to coalesce into like understanding. And I just thought that was worth sharing because we have to understand what Mercury is trying to do with this retrograde. So let me, let me uh, get rid of that off my screen here. Okay. So if Mercury is going in search of those pieces of Osiris, right, and trying to recreate something new, not necessarily to sustain the old, the old body, but to, to birth a new body, all right? The next thing that I think we need to do is think about the cycle of Mercury, okay? Because there is a thing called Mercury's synodic cycle that's going to give us uh, additional meaning to this Mercury retrograde. Now, you've seen me talk about in the past the two types of motion in the zodiac. One that is clockwise, primary motion, which is related to the mo movement of the sun over the course of a day. And then we have uh, this zodiacal motion called secondary motion, which is related to how the planets move through the ecliptic. And that is related to the, to the moon and the realm of fortune. So we have the sun, which is related to divinity, the one unchanging of knowing. And we have the, the, the movement of the zodiac, which is related to forms coming into and passing out of being. And the planets will, because the planets were called grahas or grabbers, right? This is something I've learned in my nightlife astrology class based on some of the Vedic teachings where they are uh, trying to, you know, grab our wills, our divine wills, and manifest things with them, okay? Uh, so when a planet is moving direct, it is moving in that sort of, you know, lunar motion where it's trying to bring things into being or help them pass out of being. When it switches course and goes retrograde, it is moving in the motion of the sun. It is moving in primary motion uh, in the divine will. So there may be something with this Mercury uh, where you're usually we're trying to bring into being things where we're casting doubt or, you know, we're bringing communications we're bringing, you know, Mercury was associated with technology and science and things like that. That's why people are like, oh my God, my car is going to break down, you know, whatever, Mercury retrograde. But it's a divine course correction when a planet goes retrograde. And what is happening now is Mercury has gotten to, uh, it is visible as the evening star right now, uh, and it is moving under the beams as it goes retrograde. So we had our con we're having our condition of phosphorus saying, what is the work that we're going to be doing as Mercury is going to be entering the underworld? And Mercury as psychopomp entering the underworld, uh, and I've been asking around about this, I've been asking different people, astrologers I know, what do you really think about, when? what phase is Mercury really the psychopomp? And the answer I've been getting is that uh, it is most in its psychopomp phase. Because I was like, is it the evening star Mercury? Is it when it's below the horizon or is it under the beams? And I keep coming back to from multiple sources that Mercury, uh, well, is always the psychopomp, but it, it is most thematically psychopomp when it is under the beams or invisible. Um, and that is when it's within 15 degrees of the sun. 
So Mercury is going to be entering the underworld as it goes underneath the beams of the sun, potentially trying to recollect all the pieces of our shattered worldviews to, to create something new. And it's going to be coming into conjunction with the sun. Uh, I don't know the exact date of that, but it's probably, let's see, let's just look real quick. When are we going to have our Kazemi moment? I'm going to clear my screen here because I think that might inform and give us some kind of, okay, it's going to, let's see here, right around here, right around July 1st or so. Yeah. Yep. Around July 1st, we're going to see that Mercury going Kazemi where it's in the heart of the sun and it's getting that new divine assignment. All the old is going to be burned away. And maybe we've collected all the pieces and we're starting to reassemble them again so that we can have some kind of new birth. Okay, so we're going back here. I'm going to go back to uh, Thursday the 16th. Okay, so what does that mean for, for us as a collective? Now, the other thing to keep in mind is we have a particular decan that Mercury is, is going to be acting within at this station. That's the second decan of Cancer, which has dual, dual rulership of Mercury, its own, its own being in its own decan, and Mars. Um, and it is uh, represented in the tarot by the Three of Cups. And in it, we see three, three women, the three graces, uh, holding the cups of celebration and abundance. And the three graces according to Hesiod, uh, had qualities of shining, joy, and blooming. And they were, uh, they were the, called the charities, and they were attendants of the Olympian gods, which I think can bring up another signification with cancer and nurturing. So these, these, these charities were using um, their graceful qualities, hence the three graces, to help nurture divinity. So what can we do with Mercury in this position? Well, maybe we can start getting in touch with our, our, our nurturing ch charitable qualities to begin to attend to the divine assignments that we've been given through all of these other planetary omens, uh, through, our, through our ability to, to be joyful, the ability to... Uh, to shine our light, the ability to uh, f fertilize the, the, um, the seeds of change. I thought that was another really interesting signification when we talk about this. So what's going to happen with this Mercury synodic cycle is Mercury is going to retrograde. It's going to come to that Kazemi moment at the heart of the sun. And then it's going to start emerging from the beams and make its appearance as a morning star uh, when it rises above or before the sun. Okay, And then it will start coming back into conjunction with the sun from a direct path where we have the superior conjunction. This conjunction that we'll have when it's retrograde is called the inferior conjunction. And that was said to be kind of the start of the cycle. So we're kind of got, we've got an old Mercury right now a wise Mercury that is trying to make sense of everything that's come before and release things. Again, gathering up all the pieces so that we can eventually make a new birth, right? Like Isis. Okay. Now, 
interestingly enough, as we move forward towards our eclipse, um, this Mercury station is happening very close to the United States uh, solar position. I believe that the sun in the United States Sibley chart, which is one that they commonly use for it, is at 13 degrees of Cancer. So we have, uh, you know, themes of Sirius uh, associated with the United States, this quest for Im immortality as well, maybe even at the expense of the body. But also, we're going to be seeing, you know, Mercury retrograding right over uh, the United States's sensory organ and how they are crafting identity. So we may be having a lot of questions. A lot, we may be diving into the underworld of how we are creating our identity as a country. And that identity, um, that identity has some positive things and that identity has some negative things. And right now we're coming to terms with the, the Pluto return as well with the corruption that has lied beneath the surface. And part of the way that we were, um, that we formed the country off the backs of indentured servitude, slave labor, and cultural genocide with Native Americans, and you know, bringing slaves from Africa, that, that is part of our history that we're having to, to reckon with right now. Now, don't get me wrong, there's some good things about America. I love, love my country. But there are definitely things that we have to reckon with as a society before we can, you know, move any further in, this, in the narrative of our, of our collective, uh, you know, mythology here. Um, and Mercury is going to be playing a huge role in that moving forward. Okay. So hopefully that was clear. I'm having a lot of fun with Liz Green. And I always love learning new things. And I had a really good class today with Achuta Baba too. I'm retaking both his year two class and his horary class. And he went back in, in, in Mercury retrograde fashion and redid a lot of his offerings. And I, I just want to give him a, a real shout out because he did a lot of hard work. And I, I, can, I can tell that the offerings he's going to make this semester are going to really be, really be great. And are going to be uh, they're well organized, and you um, can tell that he put in a lot of hard work. And I'm really, really excited about um, going back and and learning these things again. Uh, you know, it, this is complicated material, and sometimes the first pass through learning something, you may not you may not get it all of it. And I've had you know when I was teaching guitar classes. Um, People would take it a first time and they'd get to a certain level and then they'd come back and retake it. And that's when they really took off. And I'm really excited about that possibility in my own practice is continually going back to the, the themes and relearning these things to, to get greater and greater levels of depth. Okay. And you can see that right as Mercury stationing, like relearning stuff. That may be something that we play out as a collective too. Okay. So on June the 19th, Friday, the moon is going to be in Gemini, uh, its balsamic phase. The moon is going to be conjoining retrograde Venus at 4.39 a.m. at 6 degrees of Gemini. And then the, the only other real aspect we have of the day is the sun is going to be making a conjunction to the north node at 29 degrees of, of Gemini at 7.30 p.m. Um, that's a kind of an important moment, too, because we're going to be seeing an increase 
in solar significations. Remember the, the north node was a point of increase. And so we may be feeling uh, an increased desire or an increased awareness of what needs to stay and what needs to go. Remember that third decan of Gemini was about uh, the death of one of the twins and subsequently the, the, the sacrifice of some of the immortality so that they could you know, alternate between um, the underworld and Mount Olympus. Um, so we're really making a choice. We've had this proliferation of options. We, we're gaining the information and then we're deciding what we're gonna, what we're gonna nurture moving forward. And that, that awareness could be increased, that desire for that, that awareness. Um, or even to, you know, if you think about it, maybe even some of the instability could be increased, you know, being hosted by Mercury with the sun being on uh, the north node. Now, just kind of the, off the top of my head, when we have the sun uh, on the north node too, now I believe that this is a combination that Donald Trump has in his chart, the sun very close to the north node. You have a, a desire uh, for power. And we, we can think of the north node not just as a point of increase, which it is, it, it is sort of like a, a doorway or a gateway where the south node is a gateway where energy is leaving. But we don't necessarily have a judgment as whether it's good or bad, though. You know, remember in the Vedic system, in the Jyotish system, um, they thought of it as a hungry dragon, uh, the head of a dragon, the north node, that was never able to be satiated. It was trying to consume the elixir of life, and this is a strong desire for something that can never be satisfied. There's never enough power for a, for a sun uh, north node conjunction. There's never enough authority. There's never enough. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> Just think about that, and we could see that play out in the collective where we may see a, a power grab or something like where we, we're seeing someone exert more or try to exert more authority with a, with a Sun-North Node conjunction. Okay, so the other thing that's happening uh, on Friday the 19th is the Moon is gonna fall under the bond, where it, at 14 degrees Gemini, uh, it is going to be uh, kind of disappearing, right? And going within that 15 degree orb of the Sun, getting ready to be reborn um, so it's like the moon's going into that underworld phase, you know, and going into the furnace or the heart of the sun. That happens about 8.13 p.m. So pay attention to the evening on Friday. If there's themes that you may be working through before the eclipse, it may give you some clues to understanding what you're going to be asked to bring awareness to at the new karmic cycle. Okay, I'm going to move forward to Saturday because we've got a busy day, Saturday and Sunday. Hanging in there with me, realizing how long-winded I am with these, but I don't know. This is, I find, I think it's fun. There, there are astrologers out there that will give you the shorter, more concise version, and it's like, do you want the long form or the short form, you know? And everything has its place. Okay, on Saturday the 20th, the moon is still in Gemini in its balsamic phase, so really like that moon is really at the, it, its darkest phase. It's going to be making a square to Neptune at 9.06 a.m. at 20 degrees of Gemini. 
And then it's going to be squaring Mars at 25 degrees of Gemini and Pisces at 5.47 p.m. Now, before the square to Mars, the sun finally makes its ingress into the sign of Cancer. Okay, so let's move forward a little bit. We do have one non-lunar aspect of the day, which is Mars is going to be making a, sext a sextile to retrograde Jupiter. So that is part of our collective story here. So similar themes with the Mars-Pluto sextile I talked about earlier, but adding in significations of uh, Jupiter, which is, talks about potential self-glorification, self-aggrandizement, a boisterous, rambunctious style. These are significations according to Ren Butler in his great book, The Archetypal Universe. Um, taking action on our beliefs. Um, he talks about in that book themes of nationalism and imperialism, like the expansion of, of warlike impulses or anger and heat. Uh, now remember, we may be taking actions, uh, drawing upon that third decan of Pisces, where we have a belief system where we're trying to sacrifice based on uh, some kind of belief that we're doing the, the divine's will, right? Um, but right now, Jupiter is not in the greatest shape. It's not, we're not trying to create growth with Jupiter, we're, and we're having difficulty with it being retrograde and, and in its fall, um, not drawing our wisdom from materiality. We're, we may be drawing the, the desire to expand and affirm from things that have outlived their time and through material structures rather than from our higher self. So that's something to keep an eye on. And that I would say that that kind of fits thematically with what I was talking about earlier with the sun making its conjunction with the North Node uh, and all of the ramifications of that in the collective. So let's talk a little bit about the sun and cancer. And this will give us some thematic material to unpack the eclipse as well, because the eclipse is going to happen at zero degrees of Cancer very early in, on Sunday, the 21st. So I'll be able to kind of talk about both of those things moving forward here. So when the sun moves into Cancer, as we can see here around, you know, roughly around 545 in the evening, uh, we experience the summer solstice. And the summer solstice is where the sun is at, at its peak, uh, peak, um, declination or its peak height in the sky uh, and where the day is the longest and we are seeing the, um, the height of solar power and it starts to decline or descend um, towards back towards the earth uh, after that where the nights start to increase in length and um, it's interesting because we sort of in the West have uh, some significations with the beginning of the Zodiac being Aries and that being the start of the spring equinox, right? And there's some good arguments to be made for that. But in the Egyptian concept of time, uh, Cancer was uh, on the ascendant and was, was the beginning of their, of their calendar, basically. Um, and that coincided with the flooding of the Nile and the primordial waters and the ability of, of water to give life. Um, this is something where uh, we are experiencing um, a new host for the sun, where we have the, the moon is now hosting the sun. And the moon has significations in relationship with water as well, with the tides. 
uh, the, the gravity of the moon, you know, creates the, the, the tide coming in and the tide going out. So uh, we have a symbol of the crab, and the crab is on the border of the earth and of the waters, and it, it can go in between both. So there is this quality with cancer of moving between worlds, moving between the unconscious and the conscious of the divine and the realm of form. And I thought that was that brought up a really interesting realization of the moon as being this great manifester, but also this, this um, you know, uh, it was associated with birth and decay, right? And so you think about cancer, and I have some experience with this being cancer sun and mercury about going into the depths of our minds, of our spirits, and trying to bring something back. And this is something that I experienced a lot as a musician and as an artist, where I was really, it, it talked about the labor pains of going into the darkness and the confusion uh, that can happen when you are trying to manifest something. Um, I felt a lot of that pain as an artist, uh, and it was all-consuming as well. It was not just this kind of, it was not something that I took lightly, and maybe this is serious uh, conjoining my son, but I, I felt there was a great sense of purpose when I was making art, and it had to be perfect, and it had to be divine, you know, and I, there, it, it led to a lot of doubt, and this, this I was wondering, I've always wondered about the self-doubt associated with cancer. And Liz Green made some really great points about this. And I wanted to read a little bit more from her book. So she talks about cancer. And there are multiple themes we have to unpack with that. Um, first of all, she, she compares, uh, she talks about cancer in relationship to uh, Thetis, the sea goddess, or the sea monster that was like the uh, the creator goddess, who was was basically the, like the ocean herself. You know, the primordial ocean of of the dark matter, so to speak, that forms came out of. Um, you see this in um, Hermetic wisdom too, where you have like the one mind and the one thing, the one mind being knowledge and being the, the breath that brings things into being, or the voice or the words that bring things into being. And then you have the one thing being the substance uh, where it is uh, drawn from, where you have you know, all the potentialities that are concretized when you, when you give them breath or give them voice. And so we can think of Thetis as maybe you know, associated with that one thing, those primordial waters, that, that ocean that is has depth and has uh, mystery. Uh, there's so many things beneath the surface that we don't don't know about. We have that's one of the places on the earth that we haven't even explored in in its entirety yet. So I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about the moon too, as and cancer at the crab being able to go into the primordial waters, bring forms back out of it, and and do those those deep dives, so to speak. Uh, Okay, let me think for a second. Another thing that she compares cancer, the sign of cancer, the temple of cancer to, is the Ouroboros, and that's the snake that's consuming its own tail. 
and this is echoed in Austin Kopic's work about the first decan of cancer, which we're seeing right now with the mother archetype. And we have to think about the mother archetype, not just as nurturing, but as consuming as well. Um, for a mother to provide for her children, she has to uh, consume many, lots of food, lots of nutrients, so that she can create nurturing for the child. So there's this constant cyclical process of consuming and then feeding and consuming and feeding and consuming and feeding. And um, so that can be thought of as that Ouroboros eating its own, own tail, the cycle of eternity going round and round. Um, okay, so let me read you something because she talks about uh, Thetis, that primordial uh, oceanic goddess, and her relationship with a man called Peleus. And then, uh, of course, that being that union being um, boring a son, Achilles. So there was there were some children that they had, and well, I'll just read it for you. It says, The result of wranglings on Olympus about the fate of Thetis was that she married a man called Peleus. By him she bore the famous hero Achilles, who bears all the hallmarks of a cancer. Graves calls this behavior hysterical when, she sulks, when he sulks in his tent before the walls of Troy. And in childhood, Thetis tried to protect him from involvement with the Trojan War by dressing him up as a woman. Thetis, in fact, bore seven sons to Peleus, and true to her matriarchal nature, she could not bear the idea that these would be mortal children who were doomed to die. She managed to steal six of them and burn off their mortal flesh so that they might ascend to Olympus and take their places among the gods. Peleus was outraged by this destruction of his sons and managed to rescue Achilles just before all, the children were, all of his children were burned away. The father kept his hand firmly on the son's ankle bone, which remained mortal. This version of the tale seems to predate the story that Thetis dipped her son in the river Styx to render him immortal, forgetting that the ankle was forgetting the ankle she was holding. But the sentiment in both tales is the same. When I have encountered this myth in work in human lives, it often takes the form of a numinous projection upon a favored or beloved child who is expected to reach Olympian heights, even if the child's humanity is destroyed in the process. Sometimes cancer, if there is no actual children upon whom this vision of superhuman performance can be projected, will nurture this attitude towards his own creativity, finding anything that comes out of him flawed and distasteful unless it is, it is divine. There seems to be an issue here of what, seems to be an issue here of why cancer often will not live out his creative potential himself, but will wait until a beloved partner or child can perform the task. Wow. That's, that it, when I read that, I was like, I felt like extraordinarily <laughs> called out. Here's a few things why. It, it, and I've lived both forms of this. I've lived both. I've lived as the artist who felt like whatever came out of him was flawed and never satisfied with it. And even to the point where it was just so painful to, I, I, I waited a decade from the time that I said, I'm gonna make an album at age 23 to actually releasing said album at age 34. Um, so you can see like that, and the, and the whole time, 
the main obstacle besides just like living my life and other things that were pulling me away from completion was this nagging self-doubt that what I was creating wasn't good enough, wasn't divine enough. Um, I had a musical hero named Jeff Buckley who, who I felt embodied the divinity pretty, pretty intensely. And I was always, you know, comparing myself into, to people like Jeff Buckley and, and not to like just regular artists. And I would compare my work to like the Beatles, the, some of the most prolific artists out there and to like Michael Jackson, some of the most prodigious artists out there and say, is it that good? And if, it, if in my mind, I didn't think that it was, I was like, I'm not going to release this. I'm not, it was that, that was the pain that I think that she's discussing here. And uh, I ended up uh, having a shift in my life where um, my daughter came to live with me after a period of, of having, um, just having regular, just uh, non-custodial parent visitation. And something shifted with that as well, where we got, and you've heard this if you've listened to me in the past, where we got involved with uh, competitive swimming. And that's all been really put on hold since the pandemic. And I've had a lot of time to reflect on that. Um, <laughs> like, you've heard me talk in this literally about like, maybe my child will go to the Olympics. <laughs> like, and here Liz Green says, you know, the form of a numinous projection upon a favorite and beloved child who's expected to, to reach Olympian heights <laughs> even if the child humanity is destroyed in the process. And I just have to laugh at that because there's just a moment of recognition where I was like, oh my God, you know, have I been trying to push my child to, you know, Olympian heights? And I've also, you know, described the way that I practiced my singing as an Olympic effort too. Like I was like, I have to be the Olympic singer, you know, the Olympic, you know, equivalent of a singer. And um, yeah, just just a just a knowing and a realization and a um, pronoia, right about that. And yeah, I just I just will leave that there. Um, you know, not that I you know was a, a parent that was. Hmm, I don't think that I drove my own kid to to. To suffering through that, but it was definitely an instance where I projected my desire for divinity and for greatness and for the heights of immortality. I could see myself doing that through her swimming, you know, and totally recognize that. Um, yeah, and so I, I don't know what more I have to say about that. Just that that Liz Green, <laughs> Liz Green, you got me, Liz. You know, you got me. And as Cancerian, as we move into Cancer season, and everything Cancerian, it's not just that mother archetype. It's are we going to? And I think that as this eclipse is happening, um, are we going to, as a collective, project our divinity onto some kind of? Uh, reflected body right the moon reflects 
it shines with reflected light. And that light could be the, the light of our own divinity, or it could be the, the, trying to reflect the light of someone else's divinity or something like that. And I'm very curious to see how we may project our desire for immortality, divinity, and light through this eclipse. And as a country, what are we going to attempt to lift to Olympian heights? What is going to become the new, like, the new savior or the new, like, this will be how I express my creativity. This is the new deity that we are trying to glorify and trying to create through immortality. I'm very curious to see how that plays out in the collective moving forward, because I think it's something to be wary of and to be careful of. Um, there was a quote that Liz Green talked about with this author, Eric Newman, where she talks, where he talks about ouroboric incense, incest, <laughs> ouroboric incest, mm. you know, where it's the longing to retreat from life into the embrace of the world parent or the divine source. Um, and I can also uh, attest to that and confirm that as a person who is influenced by this uh, energy, a desire to retreat from the world and to uh, shelter in the, um, I don't know, into the waters of my mind and the waters of my own imagination, into the safety uh, and that, that longing to reconnect with a lost, with a separation that happens when we leave the primordial union and the oneness when we we there are many different philosophical uh schools of thought that talk about you know as souls we are before we incarnate in a body we are part of the the divine one and as we you know incarnate a soul into the body we leave that divine consciousness that is unified and we are separated into this particular point of consciousness and you know there there's religious and spiritual practices about how do you reconnect with the divine because you you are born into this like kind of oh i don't know this awareness of separate separateness this ignorance and that that all that life is a uh a struggle to return to that unity and uh you know we can compare this to this like teenage longing this romantic longing for the other and i can confirm that as a teenager i spent many days and nights just you know <laughs> i don't know longing for something and there were various times where i would project that on a romantic partner there are various times where i would project that on some concept and really just this, this material is helping me really realize that that's a longing for a union with, with, with God and with the divine. And that's a powerful thing that we're going to be experiencing, especially with the eclipse happening on zero degrees of cancer right on the solstice point. So let's move. I want to move forward to Sunday so we can kind of unpack that, that eclipse. Okay. Um, 
so this is we're talking about june 21st sunday and you can see that this eclipse is going to happen at about two o'clock in the morning roughly okay there we see that time there we go yeah it's going to be exact oh in my area around 241 241 eastern standard time and every time we have eclipses we have uh, the sun or one of the lights in close proximity to one of the nodes and in this case both the sun and the moon are be being conjoined by the north node the head of the dragon and um, the sun is going to be consumed by the dragon and darkened. So this is a darkening of the solar light. And there, I've read some things about eclipses where, you know, if one of the lights is consumed, that lets the other uh, concept run wild. And if we have the solar light being consumed, that is our rational knowing. That is our, um, our connection to source our connection to um, rationality. And if we're going to shut that off for a period of time, well, what, what is left? Our, you know, the night, the darkness, the, uh, all of the reflected light and the unconscious um, things that are buried within the depths, all of the sea monsters, all, the, all of Thetis's, uh, uh boiling um, and writhing within the primordial sea is kind of unleashed. And that's why, you know, eclipses were thought of as malefic events in, in traditional astrology. They weren't like, you know, I, I know people are like, it's a portal that's open. Well, sometimes portals open things that uh, <laughs> open, you know, things like Pandora's box and unleashing, you know, death and destruction onto the world. Now, if you want to go through that myth, uh, Pandora's box basically was a gift. Um, well, I don't know. I'm not going to try to, you know, cl clumsily fumble my way through it. But basically what was released onto the earth was, you know, death, destruction, decay, entropy. Uh, and what was left in the box was, was hope. So that was the one good thing. So maybe with some of these eclipses, we, we may unleash um, some of our darker more repressed natures, especially at the solar eclipse. Um, but we have to use our hope to, to get us through it. Um, so what we're experiencing with this eclipse is a seminal moment, right? It is at bo both a powerful birth, a karmic seed, but it, it has greater significance for the long term. Generally, when we have new moons, they are karmic seeds. But when we have new moon eclipses, they are major, major signposts or chapter markers in our collective narratives that are going to be playing out over the next six months, over the next many years, if you want to like expand it out in a, like a spiral. Um, they take on greater importance. And this one being conjoined, the solstice point, is just supercharged. Um, I believe it's fairly close to a conjunction with 
the United States, uh, Venus um, at, at about three degrees of Cancer. So it's, it's pretty close to that. In that Sibley chart, Venus rules the 11th house of groups and the, um, uh, the sixth house of illness, injury, slavery. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, there may be some reckoning that happens with um, our collective belief system, 11th house, and how we've, you know, manifested labor and bad fortune over the, you know, course of our history, too. Um, we, we're going to be asked to uh, think about how we are nurturing and how we are providing nurturing for others at this eclipse. Um, the host moon is in its own domicile. So equally powerful, like it is very powerful. Uh, sometimes when we have new moons, we have to look at the where the moon is um, being hosted, but here it is in its own domicile, right? Um, Mercury retrograde is co-present with this eclipse. So that is part of our story. Again, we've, we've talked about that in depth this week. We do have Mars making a whole sign aspect uh, by trine. So being willing to fight or sacrifice for beliefs is part of the story. We also have a whole sign opposition from Jupiter and Pluto. So that is part of the narrative as well. So potentially the new start that we're trying to make and the new nurturing, the new sustenance we're trying to provide is at odds with the, um, the desire to expand the maybe the systems that are corrupt and so that may be part of our our conflict that we're experiencing as well and uh we do have a sextile from uranus to this lunation as well so uranus may be trying to assist uh trying to to provide um positive promethean change um i don't know if that's how uranus actually works like providing like a planet would but it's going to be part of the story, that's for sure. Okay. So I think that pretty much covers what we are going to be experiencing throughout our next uh, few days here. Big, big changes. Um, and we're, like I said, we're in that Bardo period where we're, we're in the liminal space where we don't really know what we're going to be experiencing next. It's all kind of in flux and that's okay. You don't have to know right away. We're going to have another uh, full moon um, lunar eclipse in the beginning of July. That's when we, this, the clarity might start to happen. That full moon lunar eclipse is on July 5th. Okay. So that's, that's when we might start to, to get some, to know what direction we're going here. Next week, uh, Neptune will turn retrograde on Tuesday, the 23rd. Um, Venus turns direct on the 25th of June at five degrees of Gemini. What else? We're going to have a first quarter moon on Sunday, the 28th with a square between a Libra moon and the sun in Cancer. And then Mars will be making a sextile to Saturn. Okay. I think that's what I've got for this week. So I hope that you are all doing well out there. 
Um, if you are enjoying these videos, um, I'm doing my best to bring you as much information as I can. It's a, it's a lot of work. If you're liking these videos, uh, make sure that you're hitting the subscribe button and sharing it with your friends. If you'd like to materially support the work that I'm doing, uh, I have a Venmo uh, account at Spencer Michaud that you can make a donation. Um, I do have a PayPal me account as well. That is a great way to support future episodes of the, con of the podcast here. Um, that helps me to um, free up more time to do the research that I do. I, I put a lot of hours into the research that I do. And um, by your financial support, that allows me to do more of that without uh, distraction. Um, also, a great way to support the work I do is to reach out and schedule a reading. I always love to do readings for my clients and to uh, get to know um, my audience out there. That's a great way. You can reach out at spencermichaudastrology.com. Um, yeah, so that's what I've got for this week. I hope that you're all doing well and hang in there. I know that it may feel like there's a lot of things going on right now and a lot of uncertainty, but it's okay. Uh, Hermes is going down into the, into the underworld and hopefully reconstructing from what is left of the, the old so that we can bring about that new, new rebirth moving forward. And, um, you know, Horus was a pretty, pretty cool, uh, pretty cool deity. So Horus was the sun that was created from the, from the, um, the union of the old pieces of Osiris and Isis. So some wisdom, but the, the God Horus was about, uh, about wisdom and about sight. So we may be really able to birth some new wisdom from some of these experiences that we're going through. So I commend all of you for doing the hard work and self-examination and, and being involved in your communities. And um, I hope that you'll continue to do that hard work and uh, sustain that effort over time because that's the way that we're, gonna, we're ultimately going to um, be successful with this is that sustained effort over time. So anyway, I'll talk to you all soon. Take care, everyone. Peace.